If you want change, go out there and make it. I know that sounds stupid and cliche, but it's the truth. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, The Zero Hour with R.J. Eskow, and Ring of Fire. In the studio with me, I'm very pleased to have uh, Greg, Greg Jobin Leeds, social activist, educator, founder, and co-chair of the Schott Foundation for Public Education. He's the author of a new book, When We Fight, We Win, 21st Century Social Movements and the Activists Who Are Transforming Our World, or That Are Transforming Our World. And uh, Greg, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Thanks for joining us. So tell us about the book. So it covers six movements of the day, the climate movement, the uh, economic justice movement, Fight for 15, Occupy, uh, the anti-displacement movements from there. It covers the prison movement, the immigration movement, the public education movement. Is that six? I think we're getting close anyway. I always drop one every time. The LGBTQ movement. And uh, it really focuses on movements that are getting a lot of traction right now that are uh, in this very hard times, but really uh, coming back and fighting back really hard. It's really remarkable when you think about it, how far, like, for example, the LGBTQ movement, how, yeah. how far they've come just in the last decade. But when you look back on the history of it and all the way back to like, you know, Stonewall, you, you see that there have been, you know, movement tipping points and that it really, uh, it, it, it may look nonlinear. It may look logarithmic even. The, there's there's a certain linearity to it. There, you know, there, yeah, there has it did been, build. Yeah, definitely yeah. built over time. And when you think about Stonewall, it was a anti-police brutality um, You're right. uh, riot that, it, you know, so when I think about Black Lives Matter today, I think a lot about it. You know, and then you have like with the AIDS uh, being many people talk about that AIDS crisis. And you think about all the act up and the disruptive. Especially uh, in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. And, and people's lives were not being valued. Uh, gay uh, gay men. They thought of it as mostly a gay men's um, problem. And many people wanted them quarantined. They wanted them tattooed. And so, you know, I'm hearing Donald Trump now today and so many people talking in that line. And it's just keeps bringing back these, some of these evil things keep rearing them their head wow. and the movements keep rearing their head. Wow. What is the difference in movements that causes the, uh, the gay rights movement or the black lives matter movement to catch fire and the union movement, which is absolutely necessary for America to have a functioning democracy yeah. and a stable middle class is floundering. Um, you know, now they're granted they're floundering under a multi-billion dollar, multi-decade long sustained attack by some of the wealthiest people and most powerful corporations in the world. But they're floundering. What 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 movement lessons would you share with leaders of unions that you've learned from looking at all these other movements? I'll share less. I, I won't. I you know, I'm not going to I can't be someone who would tell uh, others what to do in that sense. I can tell you what I've learned. And one of the questions that is, and I really appreciate you asking me, one of the key questions that we ans- asked at the end of each interview was, what are the lessons that you've learned that you'd want to pass on to young activists? And so we, uh, so here's four of the lessons, and uh, there's many more in the book. We, we really focus on seven in the book, but here's four. One is you got to tell your story. 
And uh, the AIDS crisis was an, a moment actually to tell that to tell the story and actually bring it into the into lives. Black Lives Matter is doing it. the immigration movement. They are gorgeous at telling their story and coming out in a similar way. Two is disrupt power. You got to disrupt power and have the aim of changing who holds power and how it's held. So disrupting power. You think about the Bernie Sanders rallies that uh, got disrupted by Black Lives Matter. That improved Sanders' campaign, mm-hmm. and it really has begun to change a lot what's going on. And it's been a key part of the ACT UP and the, uh, you know, you think of it, now people think of the LGBTQ movement as a movement that was, that was uh, you know, more of a policy movement because that's how it ended, but mm-hmm. it was a very disruptive. So three is you have to have visions of transformation. Yeah, a, all the movements have visions that are way beyond, and the Black Lives Matter vision is really totally gorgeous vision. And uh, tell your story. Um, disrupt. Disrupt power. Have visions of transformation. And come on, Greg. Um, <laughs> I'll it's come okay. back to you that's, in a minute. That's, that's, enough, that's enough stuff. <laughs> I'll right, give you right three. There. Three is always I mean, a good number to have. Yeah, that's a, that's a great start. I know. Here's the last one, which is solidarity. Solidarity is critical and which is gets to something I talked about when I was on your uh, TV show the other day was that to be silent is to collaborate. And this is something that comes out of my own personal stories of um, my parents who both escaped uh, Nazi Germany. But it, it, it speaks truly to today when you think about there's two and a half million people in jail more than any other uh, country in the world. We have four million people being deported. We have this, we're the largest contributors to uh, climate change. And when you think of it, we um, we need to be the ones who stand up and speak out. And so and the movements of today that are transformative are ones that make connections across the different movements and they all stand together. And I think that's what's really different about today is there's a potential for the movements to all converge into one really powerful movement. Right. And, and to go back to labor, my, uh, I don't hear the labor movement telling stories. If they are, it's not making the press. Right. I don't see them engaging in disruptive activities. Um, they, if anything, they're trying to keep their heads down. Um, and therefore, if you don't tell your story and if you don't disrupt, then you don't get the, the press, you don't get the media, you can't, you know, and then you yeah. don't get the solidarity of the people around you. There is a lot of exciting stuff ha- stuff happening in the labor movement. We focus the education chapter, the public education chapter uh-huh. in Chicago, where the Chicago Teachers Union is absolutely incredible. And many are looking to them as both a model for labor, but labor in the way that they work. They're very grounded in their community. Uh-huh. The teachers, it's the rank and file teachers. It's not a top down movement, it has a transformative vision uh, and they are uh, really getting out both their powerful stories, but working with parents and teachers. And when they went out on strike and they were very disruptive, they, they, the te- the, normally when teachers go out on strike, the parents are the first to like object because it's most disruptive to their lives. But the parents came out in support of them because they were the rank and file teachers who were in the communities working. They had all the community relations. And so I think that's just another one of the lessons is you got to be grounded in the community that you're working with. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, what, what movements? Well, first of all, Bernie Sanders has said that he's not uh, a a politician who wants to be president. He he is a guy who wants to create a movement that will change American politics. He's talking about a revolution, and by revolution, he's not talking about you know the eighteen sixties. He's he's talking about the nineteen thirties. You know, the FDR revolution, right? Or for that matter, the Reagan revolution, which was a counter an anti revolution. 
Um, uh, you could say that the Clinton revolution within the Democratic Party, the same thing. You know, it's uh, the, the Democratic Party went corporate with the Clinton presidency and the Obama presidencies. Um, what are your thoughts on the movement that Bernie is talking about creating? So I, I, I think he's right on in all of this. And we also have to remember the limits of presidential politics. And so while, you know, you should get out and vote, you should get involved. It's very important. We should also, one of the big mistakes that happened with uh, Barack Obama is a lot of people said, okay, let the young guy, uh, um, you know, have his moment, you know, and, and do it. And so and Obama invited so many people into the White House. Everybody felt they were friends. And most of the movements got nowhere uh, during that time. And so... One of the things that uh, Martin Luther King talked about, I think, in his, uh, when he was asked to align with uh, the Democrats and uh, Johnson's campaign is he said, we will lose our power if we go to the inside politics. Mm -hmm. So the inside politics is key, but the movements in this book really focus on the outside politics, which is also key. We need to have a serious conversation here at the top of the show. And, you know, I get emails, people saying, oh, David, you're shilling for Hillary. How much is the Hillary campaign paying you nonsense like this? Obviously, that's ridiculous. I've been super clear. I supported Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. Right now, Hillary Clinton is the best choice. We need to keep Donald Trump out of the White House. But there's clearly some kind of major misunderstanding that's going on between me and you in the audience, at least with some people in the audience. And we need to clear it up right now, but really go further and talk pragmatically about what the next four years could be, depending on who wins on November 8th. And what made me think of this is, you know, the, the you're a shill emails I, I can sort of easily disregard. It's mostly hatreds. But last week. There were reasonable live calls and reasonable viewer emails saying, David, what do you like so much about Hillary Clinton? What good things will Hillary Clinton do if she becomes the next president? Let me be incredibly clear right now. Hillary Clinton winning on November 8th is not the victory. Hillary Clinton winning on November 8th is the minimum that we need to prevent worldwide embarrassment and the disaster of a clueless serial sex abuser vulture capitalist from being given the keys to the country. OK, if Hillary Clinton wins, that's when the real work starts, because it will be a rare opportunity. Getting a corporatist Democrat in office is not a progressive victory, right? But having 12 consecutive years of predictable, moderate, center left Democrats in the White House is an opportunity because if Hillary Clinton wins, that will be the first period of 12 consecutive years of Democrats in the White House since Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Harry Truman served consecutively from 1933 to 1945. You have to go back not that much less than 100 years to when we had more than eight years of a Democratic president. If we can defeat Donald Trump, we haven't won yet. We've simply said 
now the work can actually start for progressives. And I hope you're ready for it because Hillary Clinton will be completely predictable, Pat, in what she will do, right? Ostensibly progressive on social issues, moderate on economic issues, with likely some things that we would think of as positive, neoliberal on foreign policy. On November 9th, if Hillary Clinton wins, I don't know what other programs are going to be doing, right, Pat? It'll probably be the launch point for Trump TV, as we've talked about. But on this program, I will celebrate that we finally have a woman president. It's about time. But I'm going to be ready to get to work because that's the opportunity, not the victory. And there's even some arguments being made by some progressives that a Trump victory would actually be better for us because it would cause this sort of like liberal uh, resurgency for the midterms and for 2020. I don't think that's the best way to go at all. No. But but I think there's some legitimacy there. I think the best way is to just keep the pressure on her and maybe even primary her if need be. I have no question that this let it all burn down mentality of a Trump presidency will embolden progressives. You know, it may be true to some extent, but the Supreme Court, three Supreme Court justices selected by Donald Trump. I still don't think progressives are understanding what that would mean. We're going to talk about the real way that the election is. is uh, I almost said the wrong thing there. Wow. That talk about a Freudian slip. The real way that the election is rigged uh, has everything to do with gerrymandering and the Supreme Court is related to that. Corporate media is not going to be part of pushing for progressive change on November 9th. I'm ready to go to work if Hillary Clinton wins. If Donald Trump wins on November 8th, good luck to the U.S. And we'll be here playing defense and trying to stop the insanity. But there will be no real opportunity. If Hillary Clinton wins, it's time to activate. It will be the biggest opportunity in nearly 100 years to move the country significant to the, significantly to the left. And the circumstances are ripe for change. The country has moved left on many issues. If you look at the electorate as left as ever on abortion, as left as ever on LGBT rights, as left as ever on the problem of income inequality and the way in which corporations have this oligarchical stranglehold on the country. We'll talk about that later. AT&T buying CNN and a third Democratic presidential term will actually be the possibility of making progressive change to our country. Right. The electorate has moved left, but by and large, our politicians have not. We will need independent media to achieve anything. And don't think I'm here cheerleading Hillary Clinton because by electing her, things are just going to instantly get better, right? Donald Trump suggested this ludicrous notion in the third and final debate where if I get to be president and select Supreme Court justices, automatically Roe v. Wade will be overturned. Things don't happen automatically. That wouldn't happen automatically if Donald Trump gets his way and Hillary Clinton winning won't automatically make this country more progressive. It's just going to open the door I'll be working towards it. And hopefully you understand that now in the short term, in the in the two weeks and a day that we have left until this election, we need to keep Donald Trump out. We need to vote in the down ballot races, particularly House and Senate, because that will be a major factor in what can be achieved. Don't email me saying, David, explain to me why you're so thrilled about the possibility of a Hillary Clinton win. It has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton's politics individually. 
It has everything to do with the fact that if progressives are ready on November 9th, or really in the third week of January when Hillary Clinton will be elected, uh, we've got to go to work and it will be time to actually say this is an opportunity we've not had for nearly 100 years. Let's now critique the left from the left. If you're looking to hire a new employee, it may be hard to know where to start because there are so many job sites out there. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job to all of the top job sites. And now you can. With a ZipRecruiter, you can post your job opening to over 100 job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, with a single click. And with the ZipRecruiter, you don't have to juggle 100 emails or calls to your office. Just quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast, right from within ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. They've got great recruiting tips as well to help you write your job posting, and the service team is ready to help in all kinds of ways, including being armed with data about how to avoid gendered terms in job postings to assure a diverse group of applicants. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses, and right now my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Nick, watching Free Speech TV in Winona, Mississippi. Hey, Nick, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing, man? Great. What's up? Well, a little pep talk for all of, all of us progressives out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. When I was 11 years old, that was 1966, I marched with my mother and my aunt uh, with Martin Luther King in Chicago. Mm. All right? We marched on City Hall. All right? That must have been a hell of an experience. downtown to City Hall, okay, yep. for, for uh, open housing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm giving you all this story because I want all of you progressives out here, out, here, out here to understand one thing. Just you hear the old saying, Rome was not built in a day. No fight ends in a day. Yeah. No matter what happens to this election, the day after the election, you get back up and you keep at it. There you go. It's the movement, not the moment. Yes, you keep fighting. All right? Because now, our most progressive times, I think, was probably in the 60s and early 70s when we had the greatest amount of change. Mm -hmm. During that length of time, the right-wingers were not sleeping. They were scheming and working to turn back the clock. Yeah, they were building now, their own movement. That was the Powell memo in 71. You know, Lewis Powell exactly. on the Supreme Court in 72. And it came to a head with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Yep. All right. So what I'm saying to everybody is, it may not happen today, but keep fighting. Yeah. Okay. You know, like last year, I'll tell you a personal story. I was talking to this one kid, 17-year-old 17, 17 kid, 
that was out selling drugs. And I told him, says, listen, what you're doing, you're hurting yourself as well as the rest of everybody else here in the community. I said, we, as your elders, are counting on you to keep the fight going. Okay? Yeah. Keep the fight going. Educate yourself. All right? If your parents are not doing it, you educate yourself on what has happened to black folks in particular in the last 300 years. Okay? Once you educate yourself, I doubt if you'll be out here selling any more drugs. Yeah. Okay? You know, but then after that, you're going to have to pick up the fight. Because we elders are not going to be around forever and fight for you. Yeah, yeah, you know, Kenyatta called earlier this morning, uh, earlier today, and pointed out that today was Malcolm X's birthday, and yeah. you know his what he learned in prison. I mean, because he kind of went through what that seventeen-year-old is—he wasn't selling drugs, but you know, he, um, he was doing other things, right? Yeah, he was having some problems. You know, after his, his his father was murdered, and and then they ruled it a suicide, so his mother couldn't even get the insurance. And I mean, it was just a. And then his mother ended up in the mental hospital when he was what twelve, thirteen, something yeah. like that. And and um, but, you know, he came out of prison, a, a, a uh, an educated man and, and yes. he did it himself, as you say, Nick. And 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 I, I he was one of the figures who helped transform America. He tried to keep people away from oppression. Washington Post with an important story about what Bernie Sanders is going to do to hold Democrats accountable. Uh, obviously, specifically Hillary Clinton if she becomes president. Now, this is a story I love. Okay, totally and completely agree with Bernie Sanders' strategy here. First, they explain Senator Bernie Sanders, a loyal soldier for Hillary Clinton, since he conceded the Democratic presidential nomination in July plans to push liberal legislation with like-minded senators with or without Clinton support if she is elected. Okay. Uh, and to aggressively oppose appointments that do not pass muster with the party's left wing. I love this kind of talk. The establishment's going to hate this because all they do is cave into pressure from the right. They they're not used to ever having pressure from the left. So I guarantee you the talking points that they'll put out there and put into the press like uh, I can't believe he's trying to rein in on the parade of the first female president. No respect here. Hey, Bernie, you didn't win. She won. No, no, shush, don't, don't do it. Okay, and they'll have a thousand excuses. You've got to support your Democratic president. How do you expect her to get anything done if you don't just bow your head and uh, take everything she says as gospel? Don't listen to that. That's because you they don't want the pressure because they want to put in corporatists. So, of course, we should fight him on that. So, I love this attitude by Bernie Sanders. 
And he says, in an interview, Sanders said he and other senators have started plotting legislation that would achieve many of the proposals that fueled his insurgent run for president, including a $15 federal minimum wage, tuition-free public college, and an end to mass incarceration and aggressive steps to fight climate change. To which I say, yes! Okay, do I like that? Yes. Please believe me. Mm. Okay. Uh, now, I like how Washington Post frames that as plotting. <laughs> He's plotting to do really good things for you. Okay, all right, anyway, small point, we go on. The senator, Sanders said, uh, also plans to push for the breakup of too big to fail banks and pressure Clinton to appoint liberals to key cabinet positions, including Treasury Secretary. Sanders said he would not stay silent if Clinton nominated the same old, same old Wall Street guys to regulatory positions that are important in enacting, overseeing the financial policies he supports. Do I like that as a progressive? Please believe me. Mm, I do. Amen, brother. Amen. So you know what it makes them do? It makes them think twice. Now, normally, when these corporatist Democrats win, what do they do? They turn on Wall Street. I, we know because of WikiLeaks that President Obama turned to Michael Froman, who worked at Citigroup, in the middle of the economic collapse caused by banks like Citigroup that he ran against, and that's why he won the presidency. I can't believe they collapsed the, the economy like this. Uh, you know. And then meanwhile, he gets memos from Citigroup going, uh, okay, these are the people that you'll put into your cabinet. And you look at the list, those are the people he put into his cabinet. Almost identical. So it's not that Michael Froman decided it on his own at Citigroup, but it is telling that he puts together a list, sends it over to the Obama administration, and lo and behold, that's what you have. But that's because there was no progressive pressure to push back and go, no, you shouldn't put Tim Geithner at Treasury Secretary. The three choices that they gave Obama were Robert Rubin, who was a board member of Citigroup, was the original corporatist Treasury Secretary under Clinton, who he used to earlier run Goldman Sachs, and he's the one who does all the policies that deregulates the banks, of course. Robert Rubin was among the choices, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner. They're all way to the right of progressives. So the only choices he was given were right-wing progressives. And at the time, if you try to pressure President Obama, everybody would say, how dare you? No, you have to support the president in all of his decisions. Meanwhile, the bankers, the donors are busy handing him lists. So now this is Bernie Sanders and progressives saying, okay, well, here's our list, okay? And I know who you're going to try to pick, and I'm going to fight you if you pick those guys. I love it. That's exactly the right attitude. So I don't care what they say, and they're going to cry about this to no end. If she wins, the minute she wins, they'll say this is outrageous because then they think, Bernie, you were useful. Nice work. Move along, right? What power do you have now? Go, go, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But you do have power. Don't give up that power. I'm going to explain that in a second. So, Bernie Sanders says, quote, I will be vigorously in opposition, and I will make that very clear if they go in this right-wing corporatist uh, position, okay, in that direction, if they go in that direction. Okay, now he explains, look, we worked together with Senator Clinton, uh, Secretary Clinton, to work uh, to pass the most progressive platform uh, in DNC history. Now, I'm not sure... I would give it that title, but they keep calling it that. And it is, it's much more progressive than it used to be, right? So fair enough. So Sanders said he considers it his job to demand that the Democratic Party implement that platform. Now, he's not naive. He knows 
that uh, once the platform's done, they usually ignore it. What are you saying? No, no, no. We made all those compromises and we worked towards that platform. Not for you to ignore it, for you to do it, for you to implement it. You said you meant it. So if you mean it, well, let's get to work. Let's get that $15 minimum wage. Let's do all those other things that you said that you were in favor of. Okay. So uh, Bernie Sanders further says, we want 22 states and 46% of the pledged delegates, 13.4 million votes, and the majority of the younger people, the future of the country, that gives me a lot of leverage, leverage that I intend to use. Yes, that's the kind of talk I like. It, power used to deliver for the American people is exactly what a politician is theoretically supposed to do. They're supposed to represent you, and he's saying, you gave me that power through your votes, I'm now going to use that power on your behalf. Perfect. Okay, now Team Hillary uh, says, oh, no, no, of course, of course. Now look at this, the two sides of their mouth. Okay, so on the one hand, on Sunday, Clinton spokesman Brian Fallon said that Clinton is, quote, proud to have worked with Senator Sanders on drafting the most progressive platform in Democratic Party history. If she is elected, Fallon said, Clinton intends to partner with them to advance their shared priorities. Well, that sounds pretty good. Okay, well, if they left it at that, okay, maybe she'll do it. We'll see, you know, give her a chance. Uh, on that same day, Fallon then turned around and said, uh, we think that we have put forward ideas for the first 100 days that are the ones that Republicans should have every reason to work with us on. Great. <laughs> now, to be fair to Fallon, he was talking about immigration reform uh, among other policies, right? But here's what they're going to do. And if I'm wrong, great. I'll admit it to you guys, and I'm happy to be wrong. Uh, hadn't happened yet. <laughs> okay, that's from time to time. Anyway, in this case, uh, what they'll do is, oh, first 100 days, we got to get things done. Now, the Republicans are going to block everything she does. Today, there's a story about how they're going to block every Supreme Court nominee she puts forward. Forever, forever. You think they're going to work with her on progressive priorities? No. You know what they're going to do? They're going to cut corporate tax rates. And they're going to do it under the guise of corporate tax reform. Write it down in stone. So that's when Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Merkley, and, and Sherrod uh, Brown, among others, those are the progressive senators, will fight back. And that's when we have to support them if we, we don't want them going in that direction. But you think that the guys who say we can't wait to work with the Republicans are going to turn around and say to the Republicans, all right, now this is the progressive platform we want to hear you go. I hope so. I hope I'm wrong, but I would be dramatically surprised. Okay, now, Bernie further says, Clinton has got to rally the American people around our ideas and make it clear that if Republicans do not go along with reasonable ideas to benefit the middle class and the working class, they are going to pay a very heavy political price. Now, that's why I want you to understand, we talked about this during the primaries, but it's so important. We talked about this way before the primaries. I've been talking about it for eight years under Obama. The way to get Republicans to work with you is not to ask them pretty please. It's not to just simply agree with Republican ideas. Then why did we elect you? <laughs> they don't care how nicely you ask them. They don't care if you go golfing with them or if you have tea or beer with them. All of that is mainstream media garbage. You're not going to go and talk to Mitch McConnell and have a beer and have Mitch McConnell go, oh, yeah, man. You're right, I know I'm getting millions of dollars from my corporate donors and they don't want the minimum wage raise because that's going to affect their bottom line and that's billions of dollars on the line. But on the other hand, we had a beer, so okay, Hillary, you win. Let's make the minimum wage $15. 
Anyone who thinks politics works like that is a blithering idiot. Unfortunately, there's a lot of them on TV. So the way that it actually works is actually how Bernie Sanders is outlining, and they called him impractical. No, the real way that you get Republicans to do what you want is to play hardball politics. You go, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it to the American people. These guys are preventing you from getting, getting a living wage. You're working your ass off. You did everything you're supposed to do. I want to give you $15 an hour. They're saying, no, keep it at $7.25. Let's go to war. You know what happens? You either break them and they lose their elections and then you have more Democrats and you pass the $15 minimum wage. You break them in that way or you break them the other way, which is, okay, they see their polls collapsing. Okay, I mean, I, I, can we do 12? Can we do 12? 13, 14? Can we do anything? Please, let's compromise. Because that's how politics works. Now, maybe we're wrong. Maybe the American people don't want higher wages. They think, no, no, no. Corporations, you keep all the money. What do I need it for? You guys need to make a couple of extra billion dollars. No, keep paying me as low a minimum wage as you can. Let's take it to the American people and find out. But if you don't fight, you have no chance of winning. If your idea of, of working with Republicans is to give them what they want, that defeats the whole point of uh, electing a so-called Democrat. Bernie Sanders is, again, 100% right on not just the policies, but the practical way that you get those policies implemented. Finally, one more thing on this. Uh, one of the Treasury Secretary possibilities is Sheryl Sandberg. So she's the second in charge at Facebook. Um, Silicon Valley has given an enormous amount of money to Hillary Clinton. And, uh, and Sheryl Sandberg, very good friends with Larry Summers, who's another right wing so called Democrat. Uh, and generally very wealthy, and it comes from that perspective. Now, it doesn't mean Sheryl Sandberg's a bad person. And I, I don't know all the policies she'd want to implement as Treasury Secretary. But is she the most progressive choice for Treasury Secretary? Not remotely so. And, and everybody knows that. Um, but nonetheless, of course, the Clinton team is thinking of Sheryl Sandberg. And so Bernie Sanders says, I personally believe that a billionaire corporate executive is frankly not the kind of person that working families want to see as Secretary of Treasury. We need somebody who has a history of standing up to Wall Street and is prepared to take on financial interests whose greed and illegal behavior has done so much harm. And he concludes by saying, I expect her to appoint people who will head agencies in a way that is consistent with the Democratic Party platform. And if not, I will do my best to oppose those nominees. Now that's how you play hardball. You don't go around saying, oh, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, absolutely, ma'am. Oh, you'd like to put in a billionaire for Treasury Secretary who, whose whole circle of friends are also millionaires and billionaires and who knows all the people on Wall Street and works with them on a regular basis, and that's her context. Yes, ma'am, absolutely, ma'am. Oh, you don't want to put a progressive in. You want to put in someone from a company that has given you a tremendous amount of money in campaign donations. Yes, ma'am, absolutely, ma'am. That is not how you get change. You get changed through fighting. So I was very encouraged by this story because it looks like the fight is on. So if they are progressives, as Hillary Clinton has claimed, she was outraged that anybody would say that she wasn't a progressive. Then great, then we don't have to fight on anything. I don't have to get you to be a progressive if you're already one. But if you're not, well, then we got to fight you because it isn't about the person. I don't think Sheryl Sandberg's a bad person. I don't think Hillary Clinton's a bad person. It's about your policy positions. It's not about your own personal power. It's not about I'm with her or I'm with him. It's about what are you going to do. 
And if you're going to do right-wing positions or ones that benefit Wall Street or your corporate donors, then of course we'll fight you. We'd be crazy not to fight you. So that's not our choice. That's Hillary Clinton's team's choice. So if they want to be progressives, there's no need to fight. If they don't want to and they want to go in a Republican direction, then game on. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, who's doing away with the need to choose between price and quality to get an amazing and affordable shave. They sell high-quality razors and shaving products mailed directly to you, which means less hassle and less cost. In fact, Dollar Shave Club is about one-third of the price of the greedy razor corporations. And Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all their products that right now they are giving you your first month for free when you join the club. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com best and pick the razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades. It's that simple. If you want a first class shave, choose their executive blade and combine it with their Dr. Carver's shave butter for the smoothest shave ever. Here's your chance to see for free why over 3 million members already love Dollar Shave Club. You only pay for shipping to get started. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. No long-term commitment, no hidden fees, so there's no reason not to do it. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com best. That's dollarshaveclub.com dot com slash best. Ralph Nader uh, arguably needs no introduction, but I, I will nonetheless. The lawyer, consumer advocate, former presidential candidate, author of numerous books, his latest Breaking Through Power. It's easier than we think. His website, Nader.org. You can tweet him at Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Tom Hartman, scholar, historian, oh, advocate you, for justice. Thank you, kind sir. It's been uh, it's been too long since we've spoken. I am I am pleased to see that you've got a new book out, and I I just find it absolutely fascinating. Um, the the uh, the premise of the book, you know, you talk about how our power has been basically been taken. And I, there's some wonderful backstory here. You're, you're essentially quoting the Libertarian Party and Gary Johnson, um, except you put it in this historical context. You say, on the abolition of children from working in dungeon mines and factories instead of going to public schools, Clarence Martin, president of the American Bar Association, said that such laws are, quote, a communistic effort to nationalize children. It, be, it appears to be a definitive positive plan to destroy the republic and substitute a social democracy. With regard to Social Security, you quote, former president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, saying this is an attempt to Sovietize the country, etc. Um, where, what is the power we need to break through before we get to how do we break through it? Well, it helps to start with history. The quotations you just used, the blasphemy of Social Security and abolishing child labor in dungeon factories is now the commonplace. We take it for granted. And that's because enough people rose up, enough people marched, protested, voted the right way, supported... Uh, insurgent political parties like the Liberty Party in 1840 against slavery or the Women Right to Vote parties or the Farmer Labor Populist Party uh, parties in the late 19th century. I mean, why don't we learn from our forebears? They uh, decided at a certain time they weren't going to stay home or on the ranch or farm. They were going to get out to the public square. And they were going to show up. And showing up is half a democracy. This new book I've got it's a very short book, as you can see, 
for the very small pages. It's 140 pages. And here's my uh, commentary on this book. If you don't want to be a more powerful, effective citizen, defending your interests, that of your neighborhood, state, region, world, don't read the book. If you want to be powerful, if you want to overcome whatever sense of hopelessness and powerless you have, then read the book. It will inspire you. There are actually real people like you in the past and the present described who changed things and built whole movements. They started with no money and no influence, just the right values, determination, and fire in their belly. That's that's serious stuff. I mean, that's really serious stuff. People, you know, we, we tend to have this anodyne story about America, and actually it's been a pretty damn bumpy ride uh, to get to the progress that we have right now. Very much so. And you were a huge part of this, by the way. I mean, you know, it's, uh, and, and in fact, in your book, you quote, you, you tell a story about how Ford Motor Company said that if the seatbelts that you were calling for, the safety improvements that you were calling for back in the 70s were passed, Henry Ford II was saying, this will destroy the industry. And then later he testified to Congress that if you guys hadn't passed a federal law, we never would have done it. And now look at, we're saving all these people's lives. There you are. Blasphemy today, uh, commonplace tomorrow. I remember we started anti-smoking uh, efforts on airlines, buses, trains, interstate. And they said, what? This is un-American. You're communistic. You're preventing the freedom to smoke. I said, what about the freedom of non-smokers and their children not to be exposed to inhaling your smoke? And now, if you had if you had the millennials walk on a plane now and they saw people smoking, they'd go nuts, wouldn't they? Well, they wouldn't they wouldn't know the context of it, certainly. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember getting on planes where the last head, the back half of the plane was filled with smokers and the whole plane stunk. Right. And the interesting thing about this little book, uh, Breaking Through Power, it's a progressive publisher, City Lights publisher in San Francisco, mm. is that you can identify with these people. You, know, you can identify with 350.org on climate change. Started with a class at Middlebury College with a teacher whose name now is fairly well known, Bill McKibben. The students said, "What? we keep talking about it. Why don't we do something? So they got a 1,000 people, and they marched to Burlington, Vermont, and then he realized it was the largest march in the United States on climate change. They said, what? And so they organized this, uh, 350.org. And it's all over the world now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, this is, it's, a, it's an extraordinary uh, look at movement politics. And I love the subtitle. It's easier than we think. How um, many times we have to say that? It's easier than we think. Less than 1% of the people organized uh, to have Congress watchdog hobby clubs, let's call it hobby, yeah. in congressional districts, 435, can turn Congress around on issue after issue, higher minimum wage, full Medicare for all, cracking down on corporate crime, changing the corporate tax escape system, uh, as long as they have a majority of public opinion behind them. And on many, many things, we are not polarized <clears throat> as a society, left-right. We are left-right on together, arms locked together. I wrote, as you know, I wrote a book on this called Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. And there are 24 areas, criminal justice reform, pulling back on the empire, de-bloating the military wasteful budget, breaking up the big New York banks, uh, on and on, where you have left-right support. And if you have left-right support, Congress cannot stop it. They won't. They'll run away. They'll do, do what we want. 
because they want to get reelected. And they can game a left, they can game a right, but they can't deal with a left-right alliance. Well, perhaps. I mean, I I don't disagree entirely, but uh, what I'm seeing right now is that the the Koch brothers and some of their billionaire buddies have created this this enterprise, you know, uh, uh, Americans for Prosperity, that it it seems to function like a political party. And my understanding is that it has better funding than the Republican Party. It's got more offices. It has more employees than the Republican Party. I mean, we've got a shadow political party here that has every Republican member of the House and Senate, not necessarily every, but the vast majority of them, living in fear, even if they live in a totally, quote, safe district or safe state, because they're living now in fear of being primaried by by this group of right-wing billionaires. Last I heard, they didn't have many votes. Once you organize votes back in the districts of the American people, the big money can't have an impact like it has. In fact, it, it'll run away. And so this is a shadow-type operation, like you said, Tom. But how about a visible Congress Watch dog local uh, with full-time staff uh, say, let's say, just uh, a thousand people out of six uh, out of seven hundred thousand men, women, children in each congressional district. Let's say they got together. They said, "Okay, this is going to be our club. We're going to watch Dog Congress for the rest of the people, and we're going to report on what they do, and we're going to summon them to town meetings, and we're going to raise enough money to open a couple offices with two, three full-time people, and we're going to reflect the popular opinion of our district." Game over. It's over. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. As we we beat we beat Congress again and again in the sixties and seventies until the corporations uh, put the money in and the people coasted and they didn't stay with the marches and the rumble that Nixon was afraid of the rumble of the people etc and they took over the Congress but we can take it back you know look fifteen hundred corporations pretty much uh, control a majority of the members of Congress on a lot of their issues they don't have a single vote we're the ones who have a vote what are we doing sitting around uh, you know. Uh, making excuses for ourselves, living in our private lives, which get more and more unsettled because our public citizen duties are not being filled so we can get a living wage and get a clean environment for our children. We can get a future for the country. talk a little bit about you know, your group is uh, as which which i have some affiliation with too is is fighting for a you know self-defined mission a economic environmental racial and just and gender uh, justice what exactly does this election have to do with those causes and and then we can talk maybe about how the difference between a movement and an election and the relationship between the two but what exactly does does uh, an election have to do with those goals Sure. I mean, I would say kind of at the top of the ticket, um, 
though, you know, I'll be honest, most of our folks are not uh, super inspired by, by, obviously, by the Democratic Party candidate. And, and if they're inspired by Trump, it's a it's it's a deep anti emotion toward him. So but I think we believe that there's no way you advance the issues and, and the values that we care about from a bunker, which is exactly where we'd be if, if Trump became president. So there's big <laughs> efforts to make sure that he is not the president because that's not the ground where we can launch the political revolution. What's got our folks more excited is the activity down ballot, where there are a lot of people out of our ranks or they have similar values and principles and more of a bottom-up political revolution. And those are the races that our folks are most excited about. And we feel like elections can happen to us or for us. And for too long, many on the left and certainly in the community organizing sector have let them happen to us. And so we're running big programs in a bunch of states um, on presidential races on down to to city council in Kalamazoo or wherever uh, to elect people that have our values. You know, uh, I think that's a that's a good way of putting it, George Gale. And, you know, I've used the analogy uh, when it comes to elections versus a movement that elections are kind of like Christmas tree lights and they're bright and shiny and they and they get people's attention. But a movement is like the wire that the light, the string that the lights are on. It carries a current. It's constant. It's always there. And I guess the challenge that some of us feel we've faced, you know, I was with the Bernie campaign for a year and so on, the Bernie Sanders campaign. The challenge that some of us face is pretty much what you describe is how you keep that excitement and that, you know, electrical charge for real transformation that's motivated so many people, how you keep it going when an election, at least the top, doesn't feel so inspiring. And uh, I guess part of your answer would be, well, some of these down ballot races and initiatives are exciting and inspiring. And then I guess the rest is what we're creating the space for a movement to grow. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's the right question. And, and I'd, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say it was, wasn't hard. And we're seeing that out here, um, you know, speak to young people yesterday who are, you know, said the work to get people excited about this election, particularly the top of the ticket is, is, is really hard going and it's, it's not motivating for them. In fact, they asked me when I gave a speech to talk about November 9th, not the, not the work over the next, you know, six or seven days. So I think it's a real challenge. I do think, you know, we're in a special moment. I mean, you go back to when, when president Obama was elected, we didn't have Occupy Wall Street. We didn't have the dreamers. We didn't have the Keystone Pipeline activists. We didn't have Black Lives Matter and we didn't have the idea of a political revolution. All threads of social movement that are taking root in, in this country are, are, are new assets to build something even bigger. And what's exciting, and you can see it everywhere we're going, is that it's, it's really intersecting with organizations that are kind of in it for the long haul, developing leaders, um, have long-term infrastructure. And a lot of the people in those organizations come out of those movements. A lot of those people in the in the movements and you know, people that are leading the movements come out of those organizations. So I mean, Alicia Garza, uh, you know, a leader and the founder of Black Lives Matter is a staff of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. You're seeing that happen. And people then then we got to you know, we got to play in elections. We have to I think if you want a movement that's playing a big role in setting the context, both that elections are happening in that policymaking is happening in. And I think we've got a long ways to go. But if you go back 10 years to where we are now. The organizing infrastructure in this country is much more sophisticated in terms of interplay between longstanding issue campaigns, movement level, energy and activity and engaging in elections. We're not there yet, but we've come a long way in 10 years.
You know, I, I have to say, I think that's a great analysis. And again, we're talking to George Gale, who is co-executive director of People's Action, uh, because, you know, I, I have to admit that there are times when I find myself uh, suffering from a slight lack of inspiration, too, even though publicly I always play the role of cheerleader, you know, and this is great. Right. We can do it. And, you know, there are times when, uh, you know, but but you're absolutely right that that 10 year view is extremely positive. Uh, I remember even, you know, the Occupy movement. I remember shortly before that happened, I think I, I wrote a thing on July 4th, before Occupy rose in September, saying, you know, mm. where's the movement for economic independence? And then, you know, there it was. And I guess one of the big differences between, uh, to me, that's happened in the last 10 years is that in 2008, it seems to me that a lot of people of all ages and all types invested their hopes in an individual, in Barack Obama. Mm. And it seems to me that one of the differences now, but maybe people aren't articulating it completely, is that people are in investing their hopes in each other and in the possibilities of organization and movement and not so much in an individual. Maybe people just need to be clearer about that. You don't need the presidential candidate to inspire you. Be inspired by each other. Does that make sense? I, th I think that's I think that's totally true. And, it, you know feels, you know, I think I might have said that eight years ago as a talking point. Now it feels real. Uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, in the last eight years have taught us a lot. I think the you know, the big question is how much have they taught us in terms of what level of tension we're willing to, to create with a Democratic president? I think that is a big, a big question. And hopefully we've learned a lot over the last eight years because some of the most inspiring things the president did, particularly after those first two years when he had a Democratic Congress, he was able to move some fairly decent stuff. But the most inspiring stuff he did in the last six years, I think, were things that people either to do or created a lot of space for him to do. And my sense of Secretary Clinton is she's a, uh, you know, she's a political animal. She will uh, put her finger up in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. And the context that we set that her presidency happens in, assuming she wins, um, I think will will change what's what what she's willing to lead on and do. And but I don't think and here's the thing I think we're going to have to figure out. So I think we have to be willing to create tension and push her on a number of things. But I think just as important is the organizing happening in cities and states that set the context for her candidacy and what's happening kind of across the country, not just people going to D.C. or writing articles about she needs to be more progressive or aggressive on things. I think the, the, the work in cities and states to to raise the wage, to pass. I don't know if you're following this Portland idea around kind of a CEO salary cap related to wages, those kinds of ideas, state banks in cities and states will, I think, will impact her as well. Yeah, the, the, that uh, I, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And I think a lot of it starts with, you know, don't for, look for a leader, look to lead. You know what I mean? That's kind yeah. of like, a, a, you know, and, and that's easy to say, hard to do, but it's a it's a it's a psychological shift. And I think part of that does uh, involve, you know, as a lot of people are saying now, for example, the cities are becoming engines of progressive ideas, progressive change. Other initiatives are happening at the state level uh, and locally and in other local configurations. So I guess are there particular state uh, either races or city races, either in terms of individuals or in terms of ballot initiatives that are uh, particularly interesting from your point of view this year? I think, well, I think coming up in 2017, there'll be a set of uh, 
exciting prosecutor races. Um, and, you know, just in Chicago where I live, there's going to be an opportunity to, um, you know, further uh, remove kind of Rahm Emanuel um, aldermanic candidates and then, you know, kind of put in some more progressives and kind of chip away at the the kind of neoliberal machine in that city. And there's lots, I mean, there are lots of cities where and, and states where they're going to be interesting fights. I do think um, we've got to figure out how to really start to unify all of these fights and collectivize them because something's happening in cities and we need some stuff to happen in rural areas too, which we talk about some other time. But um, I, I think we have an opportunity to create a bit of a collective swagger. And you're a student, I think, of, of the populist movement too. And, you know, Lawrence Goodwin, the historian, you know, wrote that, you know, successful social movements re re reach a point of some kind of collective self-confidence, a sense that we actually might be able to pull this off. And I think we had a bit when, when President Obama was elected, the Sanders uh, moment created some of that Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, the Dreamers, and then it kind of fades back. So I think we have to take all of these wins happening in cities and states and, and make them into something bigger so we can kind of keep people moving. Because you know, as excited as people were during the Sanders moment of which you were a part of, I met with some, some young Sanders supporters who told me about, you know, months of disenchantment after he pulled out of the race. And they're now mm -hmm. kind of, you know, dusting themselves off and, you know, stepping back, back into the public arena, but it was quite a loss. So we have to figure out how we're kind of continue to have a collective swagger because when we start to lower expectations, which is exactly what the establishment wants us to do, We've already lost, and, and that's really not an option, but it's easy to get fooled into doing that. So what are we going to do? president is one office, a very powerful office, obviously, but that's only one facet. The progressives are angry because they feel like they are not going to be able to get the things that they need, the things that this country needs, uh, put into effect. And that's absolutely not true. Look at this. Four states right now already have minimum wage increases on their ballots for voters to decide on this year. That is a huge step forward. We saw the same thing in 2014 and 2012. These progressive ballot initiatives uh, win by overwhelming mar uh, uh, margins. They're hugely successful and they only exist because people went out there to fight for these issues. They didn't get pissy. They didn't go home and say, well, screw it. We didn't win. I'm not going to do anything. They said, you know what? I still believe in this issue. It's not a person. It's an issue that affects every one of us. And I'm going to go out there every day and fight for this. I'm going to uh, uh, get the paperwork necessary. I'm going to get the signatures. I'm going to get this on the ballot and then we're going to get it passed. That is how you affect change in the United States. You don't do it by, by staying home. You don't do it with protest votes. You don't do it by getting on Twitter and attacking people who support or don't support the person that you support. You do it by going out there and getting active. 
by actually educating people and doing something. And that is what is missing from this year's election at this point. We saw, we saw it when Bernie Sanders was running. We saw it. He energized people. But then as soon as he left, those people got mad and left. And you can't do that. As Bernie Sanders said, it was never about him. It was about the movement. And that movement still lives. If you go out there and you get active, if you want change, go out there and make it. I know that sounds stupid and cliche, but it's the truth. That's how these minimum wage ballot initiatives get on the ballot. That's how the town of Denton, Texas was able to ban fracking. Uh, of course, that was before the industry came in, made them repeal that. But that's how we're getting marijuana legalization passed in states. That's how we're getting things done. And right now, that's all we can hope for. We have to do it at the state level because God knows we're not going to elect a president this year that's going to do it. So for the next four years, we have to keep fighting. We have to hold that president, if it's Hillary Clinton, accountable. We have to push her to the left. We cannot let her say, well, TPP was already in progress when I came in, so I'm just going to let it go. I know I said I don't support it, but we're just going to let it happen. We can't let that happen. We can't let her approve the Keystone XL pipeline. We can't let her let Wall Street bankers off the hook. We have to stay involved. We have to stay energized. I know that's asking a lot, but it's, it's still reasonable. If you believed in the change that you believed in a year ago, you still believe in it today. And if you still believe in it, then you have to get out there and fight because change in this country will never happen without participation. It's on you. It is all on you. Every individual has to go out there and fight. We just heard clips today, including Tom Hartman interviewing the author of the book, When We Fight, We Win, 21st Century Social Movements and the Activists That Are Transforming Our World. David Pakman clarified that electing Hillary Clinton would not be a victory for progressives, but it would be an opportunity for them. Tom Hartman had a caller who wanted to give a pep talk to progressives. The Young Turks highlighted Bernie Sanders' plan to fight against Hillary's corporatist cabinet picks. Tom Hartman spoke with Ralph Nader about his book, Breaking Through Power. Richard R.J. Eskow on the Zero Hour spoke with the co-executive director of People's Action about maintaining the movement through the election. And finally, Farron Cousins on Ring of Fire reminded everyone that systemic political change requires participation beyond voting. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Eamon from Lava, California. Um, I haven't called in a couple months because my, my life's been kind of hectic. I got a new job and everything. Um, I'm just calling um, just to comment on the state of the election. Um, I'm honestly terrified. My best friend and his family, um, they're, they're not <clears throat> legal in this country, but they're people who literally have saved my life, and I'm... I'm just terrified that if if Trump wins, what's going to happen to them? These are good people, you know. These are really good people, and they don't. I'm sorry. 
They don't deserve to, to live in fear. That some idiot is gonna is gonna force them to go back to to a country that they can't live in. You know, it's not like Mexico is this. You know, it it has huge problems, and people leave for a reason. You know, it's a great, beautiful country with beautiful culture and and history, but you know, people leave places like that for a reason, and they try to come and find a better life. And it's not their fault that that everything that's going on with our country for the last 25, 30 years, it's not their fault. It's politicians' fault, obviously. But I, you know, I'm I'm rambling, but I just wanted to comment that. Um, I'm just honestly terrified. I don't know if if I'm just, you know, engaging in massive hyperbole, but this is really scary. Especially for so many people that I know in Southern California who, who are just good people. And this, this level of racism and fear and hate is just... It makes me really just sickened, sickened I'm sorry, that our democracy has devolved into this. You know, I, I really believe in... The American ideals of, of you know, liberty and, and justice and equality, but it feels like our, our our countrymen don't. They just want to make America great again, which is a byline for make America white again, and it sickens me. But you know, I'm sorry if I'm being emotional. I just this is really scary. Um, thanks a lot. Bye. Hey Jay, my name is Matt and I'm calling from the Pittsburgh area right here in Pennsylvania. First time calling in, got some butterflies in my belly so I apologize if I sound a little nervous. I just listened to the, the climate change episode. Totally awesome, totally badass. I just kind of want to shout out to listeners and say despite the climate and the presidential race, don't lose sight of what you can do yourself, whether Hillary or Trump is in office. Sit back and think, you know, whoever's in office, what can I still do as an individual? While the person we have running the country is a huge influence on the environment and climate change, I just I don't want people to think that activism has to stop or they still can't make a difference on their own. For example, if you see something... In my office, we didn't recycle, so I, I started a recycling campaign. I work in a technology field, and we have a ton of extra batteries all the time, so we started a, a semi-annual uh, battery drive. I'm going to fit a stereotype here, but um, you know, I eat a, a, a plant-based vegan diet because I, I fully believe that the, the CAFOs and animal agriculture plays a huge role on the climate and change. So that was a personal decision that I made to move forward with but long story short man i'm getting long-winded here no matter who's in office at the end of the the day tomorrow just don't lose sight of what you can do as an individual and and keep the air clean keep the planet looking good that's pretty much it man keep up the great work and it's uh, always a pleasure uh listening to you on the way in to work every morning all right take care buddy see ya Hi, this is Jennifer from Columbus, Ohio. I'm 32 years old and really always considered myself to be a Republican, kind of grew up in a conservative household. I've been listening to your podcast for about two months now, really like it, and I'm honestly starting to gain a little perspective. Both parties seem to be playing against each other most of the time. Instead of debating the issues, it's nice to go to some place where I can actually find facts with things I can follow up on. I'd love to hear you talk more about how the left believes and what they believe. 
grew up thinking progressive was a bad word in our house. I know there's lots of people out there finding a place just like me. It's kind of hard to find something to listen to when most media outlets seem to just be preaching to the choir. But keep up the good work. I love your format, especially the links that you give in the comments. And I'll be listening next time. Hi, Jay, and best of luck. This is Mike. I'm calling from Albany, New York. And I actually just had a couple comments about your uh, recent episode regarding white nationalists uh, who support Trump. And my, my main point that I'd like to bring up is that really only deals with Southern racism and, and Southern uh, ideas of you know, white superiority, or, you know, um, whereas the Trump support that I'm seeing in here in upstate New York is more based around a perceived class structure, and I'll explain that a little bit. The race-related point that I, I know a lot of Republicans in upstate New York make is, well, hey, you know, we're we're in the shit, too. We're, we're right alongside... You know, a lot of these families of color that, uh, you know, claim the systemic system is, you know, the uh, system against them. And and um, they even, you know, more than Southern Trump supporters believe that we're in a post-racial society, you know, because as far as they're concerned, um, you know, we were never as bad, you know, uh, up in the south, uh, up in the north as in the south. And, you know, we're so far removed from Southern blatant racism that it shouldn't be a problem, but here's the issue. For all the reasons that we all know that systemic racism is an issue, like I mentioned, it's, it's a class structure where it's perceived that if you're black, you know, in my neighborhood or in my city, that means you came from a street background, a urban background, where that's, you know, very much the case for a lot of us. And I say us because I'm actually multiracial and, and physically uh, would be perceived to be African-American. And um, even amongst white family members, I find this is a common thread of thought. And, and, I, and I think that it's worth mentioning also where uh, the author of the book in question in that episode, and it's, her name escapes me, discusses understanding of that point of view. And while I understand it's important to get all of our ideas together and really delve into what the issues stem from, at the same time, I feel like you're, uh, you shouldn't have to placate bigotry to understand bigotry. And I really like to fight against this notion of supporting conservative mindset where, you know, it doesn't happen unless, unless they understand it to happen because of their own experience. And I know I'm running a little long here, but I guess my overarching point is, one, the multifaceted Trump supporter in this country and the, the difference between Southern prejudice and racism and uh, Northern racism. And then the other point of not placating hatred just to understand kind of where it comes from, which is a point that a lot of white um, pro-Black Lives Matter supporters kind of get mixed up in is, is trying to equate both systems of thought as valid or points that are to be understood. But, yeah, that's just my thought. Uh, thank you for everything you guys do, and uh, I enjoy the show. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, to Jennifer, who called in. uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, being interested in sort of expanding uh, your horizons a little bit and sticking with the show, at least for a couple of months. Uh, To answer your question about about uh, sort of what drives me, you know, why I think what I think, that sort of thing. The shortest answer I can give is is that I I realized within the past couple of years that I can boil down my entire political philosophy to just two words, which are reduce suffering. I, I haven't actually explored every single opinion I have and compared it to that philosophy to make sure that they all fall in line with that. But I'm fairly certain if you dig deep enough into essentially any political position I hold, that is what you will end up drilling down to. So hopefully that's helpful for you, uh, at at least in the short term. Uh, Secondly, Mike from upstate New York, I have a very specific question for you. My brother is living in upstate New York right now, though he's not from that area. And so he's going for bike rides out in the country and he would see Trump signs, you know, but that's obvious. But the other thing he saw that I I hoped Mike from New York would have an opinion on, uh, especially regarding race relations and uh, upstate New Yorkers, my brother saw a lot of Confederate flags in people's yards in upstate New York. And so he's, he's trying to figure out are people confused? Do they just wish they were from the South and part of the Confederacy? Are they really just using that flag in the way that it's really meant to be used, which is to signal I'm a racist? Is there some underlying logic that goes beyond that? Mike from New York or anyone else, if you have thoughts on that, uh, I, you know, Mike just reminded me of that, uh, <laughs> that story my brother told me recently. And he's just like, yeah, you know, it could be the obvious reason, but like, sort of an interesting thing to find uh, this far north. Uh, But Mike had another question, uh, or not question exactly, but a concern. It sounded like he was saying that, you know, if you get too deep into understanding conservatives, you know, trying to empathize with them, trying to understand why they think what they think, then you're going down kind of a, uh, you know, a little bit of a dangerous path of where you end up legitimizing and acquiescing to them. And so it it turns out that the author of the book, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, in one of those many interviews that I listened to uh, to compile that episode, she was actually asked this question. It was a good question and answer, and I I just happened to not be able to squeeze it in uh, to the show. But have a listen to this. What can be gained when empathizing with those on the opposite end of the political spectrum? Because when I brought this up with uh, different people this week, they all had this concern that understanding the political perspective of somebody who's on the other end of the spectrum and understanding ends up leading to legitimization. How can understanding the right wing lead to something more than legitimizing their point of view and be the beginning of uh, concessions and uh, undermining your own point of view in order to accommodate the other side? Understanding the other side is not conceding 
to the other side or coming to agree with the other side. Very different things. It's a matter of respecting the other side. And she goes on from there, continuing to talk about the importance of understanding people, uh, but that's the real answer. Full stop. Understanding someone does not mean the same thing as legitimizing their ideas or acquiescing to their policy proposals, which are damaging and harmful to the country and individuals. So no one should be confused about that. But I find this topic so interesting that it's the topic of this week's bonus episode. I did a you know, longer story. Uh, it's called Bridging the Empathy Gap, uh, talking all about this concept. I, I bring in some stories from my own life. Mark Twain makes an appearance. And really, it's just sort of my dive into not only why it's important to understand other people, but why it's important to use that same intellectual muscle that we use to sort of examine other people's motives and, you know, what they're thinking and why they're thinking it and turn that back on ourselves and recognize that we are not immune to propaganda. Uh, We are not immune to being tricked or misled or any of those things. And and the best favor that we can do for ourselves or anyone else is to keep a keen eye out for that. And unfortunately, it's a lot easier to see it in other people than it is to see it in ourselves. But that's why it's all the more important. So if you're already a member, make sure you are subscribed to the members-only bonus content feed. Uh, And if you would like to become a member, you can do that at the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. And as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past Stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past our own sad stories and forget who it is we're fooling.